Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. And now, a warning from our old buddy George. Binge Mode contains adult content, much like Game of Thrones, the series adapted from my novels, A Song of Ice and Fire. If you have read the novels or have watched the show, then you're probably okay. Come join us on the Cinnamon Wind. It's time for Binge Mode. You believe in anything? I believe in lots of things. Something greater than ourselves, I mean. The gods. Destiny. You believe there's a plan for this world? No. Neither did I. I was a cynic, just like you. Then I saw a girl step into a great fire with three stone eggs. When the fire burned out, I thought I'd find her blackened bones. Instead, I saw her, Daenerys, alive and unhurt, holding her baby dragons. Have you ever heard baby dragons singing? No. It's hard to be a cynic after that. Hello! Yeah. And welcome to Binge Mode. I'm Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, now that he's finished shopping his wares to the cock merchants of Essos. Yeah, magic. <laughs> it's Ringer staff writer and your maester, Jason Concepcion. You just grind that thing up, sprinkle it in your matcha. <laughs> Delicious. Yeah. Jason? Yeah. When the fire burned out, they thought they'd find our blackened bones. But instead, they found us. That's right. Alive and unhurt, holding our binge mode mics. <clears throat> Have you ever heard Baby Dragons podcasting? Once, long ago. Yeah. It's inspiring. Hard yeah. to be a cynic after that. And uh, that's part of why we are rewatching all 60 episodes of Game of Thrones. We're deep diving one at a time. Spoiler warning. We will be going deep on details from the show and the books from this season and beyond. So take us to Slaver's Bay. Put a sword in our hand and we'll prove our worth because it's time to break down season five, episode six, Unbowed, Unbent, Unbroken. Jason? Yes. Jamie likes to improvise. He does. And as Bron says, that explains the golden hand. Yeah. Not us. We like to plan. We like to get our bearings. So before we discuss this episode in detail, let's offer a brief refresher on what actually happened in Unbowed, Unbent, Unbroken by taking a quick trip down our very own King's Road. In the House of Black and White in Bravos, Arya is washing bodies and preparing them for face harvesting, and her clashes with the waif continue. Arya plays the game of faces with Jock, and he sees all of her lies and doubts her commitment to becoming no one. Then Arya gives a sick girl the gift of death by having her drink from the well water, Jockin observes from the shadows, and later he leads Arya down to the Hall of Faces. He asks her if she's ready to become someone else. Meanwhile, on the way to Slaver's Bay, Jorah's grayscale is progressing at a troubling rate. Guys, the fact that it's there at all is pretty concerning. <laughs> yeah. And there's some chatter, too. Tyrion tells Jorah that he met his father and accidentally reveals to Jorah that G.R. Mormon, Jorah's father, was murdered by his own men in a mutiny. This is a sad and deeply touching moment. Yeah. Jorah and Tyrion are chatting about Danny when they are captured by slavers. They manage to 
talk their way into a more favorable situation and a trip to Danny's <laughs> seat of power in Marine. One, by saying that Jorah is a legendary fighter who can make these guys money. And two, after they note that dwarf cocks have magical power, Tyrion pulls the, you got to prove it's from an actual dwarf. Better <laughs> right. keep it attached to my live, thriving body. Good idea. You got to keep it fresh. Got to keep it fresh. In King's Landing, the Faith have tightened their grip on the capital. Lancel confronts Littlefinger, who's just arrived from the north, and he delivers a message. Brother Lancel. Which is essentially... Hey, man, you own brothels and stuff, so watch yourself. Littlefinger that goes to visit Cersei, he wastes no time in betraying Roose Bolton. He tells Cersei that uh, the Boltons have Sansa and they plan to marry her to Ramsay. Cersei is enraged. Littlefinger makes her a deal. Using the Knights of the Vale, I will take Winterfell and then you can name me Warden of the North, Cersei agrees. Lady Olena arrives at the behest of Queen Marjorie. She meets with Cersei. Olena knows that Cersei is behind Loras' arrest. The Lannister-Tyrell alliance, which is holding the realm together at this moment, is fraying. The High Sparrow later questions Loras. And when he's done in an alarming development, he turns his attentions on Queen Marjorie. Then he introduces his star witness, Olivar. The queen is placed under arrest for lying under oath. In the water gardens in Dorne, ah, our favorite spot. <laughs> Wonderful. Ranking slightly ahead of Marine. Yes. <laughs> Marcella has fallen in love. She's smitten. Marcella and Prince Tristane are, are just, they just want to be able to make out in the water gardens. Be young and be in yeah. love. What's so wrong with that? But no, the world is cruel and the adults have other plans. Jamie and Bronn, <laughs> dressed as Dornishmen, arrive at the gardens in an attempt to rescue Marcella, who does not really want to be rescued. No. Uh-oh. In a convenient timing twist. What a coincidence. The Sand Snakes are also there, also after Marcella. They want to kidnap her to avenge the Red Viper. Well, if everyone's <laughs> after the same thing and everyone's a warrior, a fight's going to break out. And sure enough, it does. Jamie and Bronn fight the Sand Snakes. It is not no great. It's not on the level of, say, hard home. It's not Blackwater in terms of set not pieces. Mountain and the Viper. And uh, you can Google the gifts of this <laughs> and decide for yourself. Basically, everyone ends up in jail. Yep. Uh, Ario Hota, Prince Duran's man, comes down, breaks up the action and scoops everybody up and then goes and finds Ilaria, puts her in jail, too. In Winterfell, the wedding of Sansa and Ramsay in front of the Weirwood and Winterfell's Godswood ends in horror and rape. And we're just going to take an extra moment or two here to talk about this scene in some detail and provide some context from how this was received at the time. This is incredibly tough to watch, no yeah. matter how many times you've seen it, knowing now that, you know, you know what to expect now, you know what's coming. It is still horrifying. Yeah. It is devastating. And it's extremely controversial. And it's something that the show runners and the writers had to explain right. at the time. And we just wanted to, you know, take a couple minutes here to, to talk through some of the reasons that this was troubling and was met with criticism and questions. So this is actually a change from the books. In the books, Ramsay is married to a girl named Jane Poole, who was the daughter of Winterfell's steward and a friend of Arya and Sansa's. 
And, and is being positioned as fake Arya. Right. She's pretending, well, she's not pretending, but they are forcing her to pretend that she is Arya, much in the same way that they're forcing Theon to pretend that he's Reek. So in order to change something from the books, you know, you've got to ask yourself, what does this change accomplish? And while it certainly is a more expedient way to show that the Boltons are consolidating their hold in the North, it's done in such a way that really is troubling for several reasons. One, Sansa, they had, the, the show has basically since season one been moving Sansa from a position where she was just kind of this typical starry-eyed teenage girl into a person who is progressively taking more agency in her life, playing the game as Littlefinger would say. And this takes that away in devastating fashion. And also, it seems to hinge on Littlefinger not knowing that Ramsay Bolton would do this. He has a line um, in a previous episode where he says, "You, I don't know much about you, Ramsay. And he says, you know, well, I've just recently become a lord. And this seems to fly in the face of everything we know about Littlefinger, who is one of the most thorough men in the realm, is thought of every angle, would surely know... <laughs> I mean, it's not like uh, Roose Bolton has 15 kids and five bastards running around. You know, it's Ramsay, and it's just Ramsay. It's fair to say that a lot of the rationale hinged on an actually pro-Sansa, like, we want her in the story more right. um, kind of line of thinking. The showrunners, the writers, the producers essentially were saying, um, actually before this even aired, heading into the season, explaining some of the changes that they were making well— if one of these book plots sort of hinges on, well, we need a Stark to help legitimize our hold on the right. North, why not use an actual Stark, right. especially when Sansa's book plot at this point is pretty tangential to right. what's going on. They wanted to get her into the thick of the action. Okay, at the most basic level, there's nothing wrong with that line right. of thinking. That actually makes perfect sense. The troubling part is knowing that Ramsey's wedding night story involved a heinous rape and choosing to go in that direction. That didn't have to happen. Just, Sansa could have been there and been married to him without this particular event taking place. This is a character who has suffered an immense amount in her very, very, very young life. So it's possible to say, you know, her character arc sort of hinges on her continued development as a strategic thinker yeah. without in any way saying, implying, or even positioning her to be in a position where she basically needs to suffer another hardship to yeah. take that step. She's suffered enough already. And then, you know, the final element that was was troubling here is the scene plays out in large part through Theon's right. perspective. When Ramsay first orders Sansa to undress, the camera lingers on her face as she is beginning to cry. And then as soon as Ramsay pushes her down onto the bed right. and the actual rape begins, the camera swings away from Sansa. We hear her cries and her screams, but we zero in on on Theon, on yeah. Reek, on his tears, on his face. And there's just no acceptable rationalization for showing us the effects of a woman being raped through a, a man's perspective. Right. And Theon's character development is valid, too, right. but it's a separate thing. And that rape is not happening to him, making him appear in any way like the victim there. 
intentionally or otherwise, diminishes what's happening to Sansa. And that was a cause of great concern to many people. Mal, there's no great way to transition from that subject matter, but now we are going to discuss the defining theme of this episode. And the defining theme of this episode is idealism and extremism. Idealism is one thing and fanaticism is quite another, though they exist clearly on the same spectrum. And they're spreading throughout Westeros and Essos, both in connection to and independent of actual religious institutions. Yeah, one of the things that's interesting about seeing this theme take on a larger role in the show is that sometimes we see it on a really human, individual, person-to-person level, and institutions don't need to necessarily be involved at all. So, like, you know, we we can start kind of by zooming in to the conversation taking place between Jorah and Tyrion, and then, you know, pan out and talk about the faceless men and the sparrows. Yeah. So, you know, with, with Jorah and Tyrion, Tyrion asks Jorah, like, what's up with all right. of this? What is in your mind, in right. your heart, that's leading you to hang out in a volunteer brothel, <laughs> capturing me and sailing me across the continent yeah. to try to get back into the good graces of a woman who wants nothing to do with you? What's up with that? Is she worth it? And, you know, he goes on to note, historically, your family yeah. doesn't like her family. You know, he notes that the Mormons fought against the Targaryens during the rebellion, right? Mormons, northern house. It's not even a natural alliance. And Jorah's reply is idealistic. It's religious, even though he's not talking about right. religion. It is bigger than any one human being. Being, even though he is saying this as one human being, you know, he says it's what he goes on to say is is basically about the nature of belief and kind of the meaning of life. You know, what is the point of it all? Well, yeah. you try to find something like this. So he says to Tyrion, do you believe in anything? Something greater than ourselves, I mean, God's destiny. Do you believe there's a plan for this world? And Tyrion says, no. And Jorah says, neither did I. I was a cynic just like you. And then I saw a girl step into a fire with three stone eggs. When the fire burned out, I thought I'd find her blackened bones. Instead, I saw her, Daenerys, alive and unhurt, holding her baby dragons. You know, Tyrion goes on to note, well, okay, sounds charming and all, but that doesn't mean Danny's going to be a good ruler. You know, Tyrion is justifiably concerned as Tywin Lannister's son. Tywin was in the Mad King's inner circle. Obviously, these families are interlinked. They have a lot of shared history, good and often bad. And he is concerned about Danny's bloodlines, you know, insane father, the Targaryens. Famously crazy. Yep. You sure you want to be hitching your ride to her wagon? Or hitching your wagon to her ride? Her dragons. (laughs) (laughs) And... You know, he's not only not sold on the idea as Danny as prophet just mm-hmm. yet, he's not sold on the idea that prophets are even a good thing right. full stop, right? He says, you know, so a woman who has not spent a single day of her adult life in Westeros becomes the ruler of Westeros. That's justice. And Jorah says she's the rightful heir. Tyrion asks why, you know, because her father burned living men for amusement. And Tyrion, in large part because his formative years, his life— really hinged on being handed so little compared to his siblings, compared to other people born into great families. 
really rejects that yeah. idea. You know, he's not a mind by rights guy. He believes in earning it because he's had to earn so yeah. much. And even the things that he he frankly has earned are often deprived to him. So that's not really how extremism works. Right. Tyrion, at least at this point, is still thinking too rationally right. to buy in the way that fanatics have to. Speaking of fanatics, on the other end of that spectrum from a kind of semi-harmless idealism is extremism as displayed by the sparrows. Lancel stops Littlefinger in the street, and the way he does it is fairly shocking. I mean, Littlefinger is a notable person in the realm, not just as a businessman slash former master of coin. He is Lord Protector of the Vale, in addition to Lord of Harrenhal. But he, like his fellow sparrows, is buoyed by a belief in something bigger than himself. He's part of something now. He's not Lancel Lannister. He's brother Lancel. And he tells Littlefinger, you know, we abandon our family names. And he tells Littlefinger who, uh, Littlefinger replies, quite a family name to abandon, which is a great point. This is one of, uh, Lancel is walking away from being a member of one of the most feared and notable and rich in history and wealth families in the realm. Right. And Lancel is all in on that. He's quite ready to do it. And this should, this gives you a idea of how persuasive the ideology of the Sparrows is. This is not a phase. You don't carve a bloody seven-pointed star into your head and start arresting notable people in the streets if you're just kind of like going through a fad. And Littlefinger, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised that he isn't intimidated, but when Lancel says, you find there's little tolerance for flesh peddlers in the New King's Landing, Littlefinger says. We both peddle fantasies, Brother Lancel. Mine just happened to be entertaining. <laughs> Love um, that. <laughs> and there's nothing fanatics like more than having their commitment back. And by the way, you know, Littlefinger's right. The common people, by and large, they need these kind of diversions and entertainments that Littlefinger provides. And though they may be religious people in certain aspects of their life, they probably want to go out and have a glass of wine on Saturday. But when you're a fanatic like the sparrows are, the world is black and white. There's what you do as written in the seven-pointed star, and there's the things you don't do. When Olena goes to chat with Cersei about the fanatics, she's armed. Great scene. It's an incredible scene. When Olena goes to chat with Cersei about the fanatics that she armed and allowed to arrest Loras, it goes, as you would expect, really not well. First of all, Olena understands that this is Cersei's work. It would, it's obvious. Number one, um, who would allow the faith to arm? Surely not King Tommen, who I'm not sure what, how this idea would come into his head. And, of course, Cersei is doing her best. I am Tywin now impersonation. Right, down to, at, right down to the letter writing. <laughs> letter writing at his desk, not looking up from the letter, scribble, 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 Making scribble. Making your guests wait, sweat it out. Yeah, and Olena snaps because, listen, she's seen a lot of shit and she's seen... <laughs> She's not here to uh, pretend that <laughs> Cersei is is carrying on great correspondences with great lords of the realm. And she says, put down the pen, my dear. We both know you're not writing anything. <laughs> and Cersei says, ah, yes, the famously tart-tongued queen of thorns. <laughs> and then Olena fires right back. And the famous tart queen, Cersei. Cersei thinks that labeling the faith as fanatic somehow insulates her from th the fact that she had a hand in arming them. But, you know, no one really would believe this. She says, I was shocked as anyone. What? When the faith arrested Sir Loras, I was shocked to find fanatics in this establishment. She says, I have no love for these fanatics. 
but what can the queen mother do? And now, of course, uh, you know, doubling down on the weakness that she so hates. She's been saying since season one, you know, I should, I should be wearing armor. Why is it that no one thinks a woman can do this job? And now here she is using that as a shield to kind of parry these uh, accusations that she had something to do with this. And Olena cannily makes a, known, a threat of her own. She asks, how do you think the realm is paying its bills right now? Where do you think the food comes from? And she says, do you expect this alliance to continue after you've thrown our future into prison? And Cersei says, as for your veiled threats, and then Olena breaks. So what veil? Exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm threatening here. Right. One cut- of us is trying to have a candid conversation. Right. I'm threatening to cut off the food and stop paying the bills. So what do you what do you think I'm doing? And Cersei says, do you really want to see the, the Seven Kingdoms slide back into warfare? And then Olena kind of showing the history and the acumen she has in dealing with great houses of the realm. She says, I didn't trust your father. I didn't particularly like him, but I respected him. He was no fool. He understood that sometimes we must work with our rivals rather than destroy them. And here Cersei shows herself to be a fanatic in the same way that the sparrows are. She is beholden to nothing more than her very poorly controlled rage. Um, she says, House Lannister has no rival. Hmm. Well, I guess conversation over then. Uh, and she shows herself in that moment to be perhaps the biggest fanatic of all, certainly among the most dangerous. And then we go to the inquest. Ah, yes, the inquest. Oof. Just a small little gathering, Can not I a ask, full trial. I feel like there should have been more Kingsguard in that room. I thought you were going to say you feel like they should have let Loras take a bath. <laughs> I mean, there's so much to it. Like, where? why are there not more armed guards in this room? If that room, like, catches fire, the entire realm goes even, down. Even goes when Loras, like, charges at Olivar, yeah. like, he gets pretty close. He does. He's pretty close to the witness stand in yeah. part because there is no witness stand. Right. They're all just in, like, a prayer circle, right. basically. <laughs> Um, the inquest is fascinating. You yeah. know, High Sparrow getting right to it, asking yeah. Loris, do you deny all the charges against you? Fornication, buggery, blasphemy. And Loris says, of course I deny them. Never lay with Renly Baratheon? Never. Nor any other man? Never. Okay, it seems like this is going to be simple, right. tidy. Well, twist. Yeah. Colin Marjorie. That's right. The circle widens. To the stand. And again, there is no stand. Right. To the chair. Marjorie's like, Me? I'm the queen, and dude. This, sh- this should have been where they walk out. This should be where Cersei realizes she has miscalculated. But she knows she lo- she is absolutely she's like too, bathing in right, this. But she's too yes. busy relishing right. ultimately a pretty, not only a petty, but actually a misguided and yeah. damaging victory over a foe to right. realize what she's doing to herself. Right. Oh, Cersei. High Sparrow's like, listen, according to the laws of the seven, neither kings nor queens are exempt from testimony at a holy inquest. Bad sign. Yeah. Bad Kings sign. or queens, sirs. People in that room are yeah. used to being in control, are right. used to being in power. And this one dude without shoes is saying, well, actually, right. you've given me the power to rob you of your power. Right. Marjorie says, okay, you know what? You're going to make me play this game? Fine. Charges against Loris are a lie, right? One more twist. One more problem. Enter Olivar, who yeah. comes in and makes the wine-colored Dornish-shaped birthmark testimony that ultimately sinks Loris. He notes it's quite high on his thigh, a.k.a. I'd only know it was there if I'd seen him naked. And he also says that Marjorie saw them together, walked in. She knows, a.k.a. she just perjured herself, right? Cersei makes a 
truly pathetic, yes. transparent attempt at like fronting I, I that she's offended, right? This testimony is an insult to a great house. Why should anyone take the word of a squire over the air to Highgarden? A source. At least you, at least you try. And it's ruling time, right? And yeah. the High Sparrow says the faith is satisfied. And everyone for a second is like, okay, cool. Well, right. Are we done? going to pack Are up. Are we good? You know, can I get my brooch back? And he says there is enough evidence yeah. to bring a formal trial for Sir Loras and dun, 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 Queen Marjorie. Olena literally is like, what? <laughs> yeah. What? And the High Sparrow says, bearing false witness before the gods is as great a sin as any, my lady. Take her. And Marjorie's protesting, no, Tommen, Tommen. Her husband is the king, so she is Tommen, logically appealing to Tommen him. Tommen is looking around for anyone else to take this burden from him. Tough moment for the little guy. Yeah. Sir Pounce? Yeah. Where <laughs> are you, Sir Pounce? Help me. Ride to my defense. And Olena just shoots dagger eyes at Cersei, who shoots him right back. And, you know, again, if Cersei had a shred of awareness or a shred of foresight, she would be terrified by what just unfolded, right. not gloating. Giving the faith the power to take down Marjorie means that she has also given the faith the power to take herself down. She just isn't thinking that way yet. Down in Dorne. Love it there. We've got the Sand Snakes, who exist somewhere in kind of that medium range between idealism and fanaticism. Justine and Marcella, you know, they just want to be in love and make out in the beautiful water gardens, which is kind of like, uh, imagine like Palm Springs, but with water kind of spouting and pools and children playing and stuff like that. But these two sets of, I mean, borderline extremists maybe are set out to disrupt that. Jamie and Braun who are hell-bent on getting Marcella out of there. Jamie, of course, is cannot and would not be expected to think rationally about his relationship with Marcella. And then there's Elaria and the Sand Snakes, who just want to kidnap, kill, and probably chop off little pieces of Marcella and send them back to King's Landing in retribution for the many, many, many wrongs done to their house by the Lannisters. Neither of these sides is thinking clearly or able to see the impact of their actions. This could mean war, and either side could create could create a, a conflagration that results in a wider war. Doran sits in his wheelchair and watches. This is a Lannister and a Martell. They have no idea how dangerous that is. We must protect them. Um, he's talking here about Marcella and Prince Tristane. Doran, you're not really doing a good job with this, right. though. Literally like, just sitting doing? there watching. We should protect them, eh, Ario Hota? What say you? Yes, now I'm going to take a nap. Do you still know how to use that axe? Good, good. I'm going to go... Yeah, don't use it now. I'm going to go to sleep. I'm going to go do my ankle stretches. I have gout. I'm not sure if you've heard. Yeah, and then Obara, Obara Sand really lays out the stakes for her side. She says, I am Obara Sand, daughter of Oberyn Martell. I fight for Dorn. Something bigger than herself, you see. Who do you fight for? Even her introduction is a mission statement. This is who I am. This is what defines me. This is what my life is about. The faceless men are definitely defined by what they do and who they have chosen to be or not be, right? Yeah. No one. And we're learning a lot more finally about this group that Arya has infiltrated. Yep. Everything that she is witnessing in her early days in the House of Black and White is extremely ritualistic yeah. in nature. The corpse washing, 
the fountain drinking, the game of faces. These are the patterns that define religious commitment and conviction. And so is the way the truth is treated. You know, do you need proof or is your faith enough? Right. Have you opted in fully? And the scene between Arya and the waif, where after the waif is, you know, bullying Arya, picking on her again, she shares what we what we and Arya briefly think is her backstory. It's really fascinating to watch in the context of what the truth means here, right? She finishes and Arya's like, okay, yeah. I feel like I'm getting to know you a little bit better here. And then the waif says, was that true or a lie? And Arya's like, wait, what? Yep. Literally, she's like, what? Did you believe every word I said? And Arya's just staring there, stunned, confused. Wave says, get back to work. Okay, lesson. That was bullshit. Right. Getting me to believe that bullshit is part of that. Right. Seeing if I can detect that it's bullshit is part right. of that. Can you commit to a lie so strongly with such full-fledged dedication that it appears to be nothing less than the total truth. Right. And we see the next phase of this right. when Arya is tested because she needs to be indoctrinated. Yeah. She is not thinking this way yet. Of course, it's not a natural way right. to think, no. right? And so Jockin wakes her up to play the game of faces and he slaps her for each little lie that she tells to reinforce the message. And deliciously for viewers that includes a little lie she's telling about the hound yeah, that is great i, I wanted love this. this is so good i wanted him to suffer i hated him slap and aria's like that's not a lie she's still trying to convince herself right. that that's how she feels about right. the hound right and what does jack and say a girl lies to me to the many-faced god to herself that's part of it convincing yourself yeah. that's what extremism is does she truly want to be no one, Jockin says. And Arya says, yes. Slap. <laughs> He's not buying it yet. I'm not playing this stupid game anymore, Arya says. Reasonable. I wouldn't want right. to play either. It doesn't seem like much fun. There's probably football on. Right. <laughs> and he says, we never stop playing. Yep. Then there's another test for Arya. A father enters the... House of Black and White, and he's brought with him his daughter, and she's sick with some unknown disease, dying, looks terrible. Um, Arya goes to her, and in order to get this little girl to drink of the poisoned water from the well in the house in Black and White, Arya spins her a story about how I was once sick just like you were, and I came here, I drank of the water, and all of a sudden I, f I feel better. I'm healthier now. Um, and this can happen to you. This can, you know, if you just drink of this cup. And she, of course, little girl drinks and she dies. Boom. Achievement unlocked. Jacken was watching this the whole time. He takes Arya down to the Hall of Faces and says, is a girl ready to give up her ears and nose and tongue, her hopes and dreams, her loves and hates, all that makes a girl who she is forever. And really think about what he's asking her. Are you ready to leave your life behind and join our church? Leave everything behind. Leave your thoughts, your memories, your desires, everything you've always wanted to do, all the things that make you who you are, that form your experiences. Are you ready to just, like, get rid of all that? And she's touching one of the faces, you know, as he talks. And she says, no, a girl is not ready to become no one, but she's ready to become someone else. Okay, this is a lot. Finally, we finally, we walked through that door yeah. with Aria. We are in the Hall of Faces with Aria. We are like, wow. A lot of faces. Yeah. A lot of a lot of pieces of carved skin hanging hanging around. What's going on here? What is all this about? Well, Jason, we are ready to become someone else too. People who understand 
what the heck is going on inside of the House of Black and White? So let's assemble the conclave and head to the Citadel. Teach us everything we need to know about Bravos and the Faceless Men. Bravos and the Faceless Men. So some centuries ago, a fleet of Valerian slave ships bound for a freehold colony of Sotheros across the Summer Sea was waylaid by its own human cargo after a violent insurrection the slaves grasped their newly found lifeline with all the strength they had, having seen their homelands destroyed by the Valerian war machine and their dragons and their Valerian steel. The freedmen knew they would be pursued. So they turned their fleet north away from where they were heading and sailed hard in order to put as much space as they could between them and their former masters and their dragons. They were a mishmash of races and religions from tribes and cities and regions spread all across Essos speaking, who even knows how many different languages, but they were united by hatred and fear of the Valerians. Eventually, a group of women of the Jogos Nai, Yogos Nai, we're not really sure how to pronounce that one, a nomadic tribal group from far, far, far eastern Essos, beyond the Bone Mountains, had a vision of where they would find their eventual refuge. A brackish lagoon on the far northern tip of Essos containing a hundred islets encircled by wooden hills to hide them from the prying eyes of passing sea traffic, cloaked by coastal fogs to hide them from the overflying dragons of Valeria. Here, in secret, the freedmen founded the city of Bravos. Now, because of the diversity of the founders of Bravos, these people strive to create a city where all races and religions were equal. In their former lives, they were soldiers, tutors, laborers, cooks, maids, fishermen, prostitutes, bookkeepers, and so on and so on and so on and so forth. In order to govern themselves, they created a complex process by which the notable citizens of Bravos would select a leader known as the Sea Lord of Bravos, who then serves for life. Now, for years, they kept their existence secret, fearing Valerian punishment. It helped that their surroundings were very bountiful. The fish from the lagoon then has now sustained the, the Bravosi. The wall of hills guarding their home was rich in timber, iron, tin, other useful materials. And as the city gathered its strength, they sent ships out, died, of course, so that no one knew exactly where they came from out to trade, and these ships would um, carry false papers just in case they were stopped. They would say, oh, we're actually from Lease or something, Mirror, wherever. And they took circuitous routes to and from their secret home to avoid the possibility that they would even be stopped and to kind of go away from the Valerian power center. Bravos developed trade routes going west to Westeros, across the narrow sea from the freehold. The Iron Bank, which began as a converted system of mine shafts to safeguard valuables, began during this time and began to put its currency to work, lending money, recouping interest. Quietly and against all odds, Bravos became an economic colossus right under everyone's nose. And when they were strong enough, the Bravosis made their preparations to reveal themselves to the world. First, the Iron Bank offered cash settlements to the Valerian descendants of the original slave owners. Uh, the Valerians were only too happy to accept money from people that came out of nowhere. Who? Bravo, what? Money for what? I mean, this is like a century later, and the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren of the masters have completely forgotten about this long-lost fleet of ships that had sailed away back in who knows when. So now confident the Valerians had no interest in pursuing them, Sea Lord Utero Zane sent ships to all corners of the world to announce the existence of Bravos. And it surely could not have hurt that such a display also was a good example, a good showing of Bravos's potent naval power. Since the fall of Valeria, the Bravosi Navy has become the dominant sea power in Essos. Now, faceless men, 
The Mysterious Faceless Men are a cult of assassins based in the House of Black and White in Bravos. Their belief system is really a distillation of Bravos's diversity and origin story itself. The Faceless Men worship the many-faced god, and they believe that all other gods, the old gods, the seven, the black goat of Kohor, the drowned god, so on and so forth, are merely aspects of the many-faced god. Therefore, all religions are valid because they are all part of the many-faced god. They are all the many-faced god by a different name, essentially. The assassins of the faceless men are extremely, extremely effective, as you would expect from people who are able to blend in into any society, change their faces at will, etc. Um, and you can hire them, but for a very, 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 very steep price. But once paid, the faceless men agree to take hits on any person in the known world. Anyone. How steep are we talking about? Okay, well, in the books, life often pays for death, meaning a penitent visitor to the house of black and white might pay with their life in order to take the life of another person. And that's just like for a normal person, you know, like walking around in the street. What about for a famous person, a, a high lord or something like that? In the books, Pycelle suggests that the realm might use the faceless men to assassinate Daenerys Targaryen. Littlefinger then notes that the price to hire uh, the faceless men to kill just a merchant is twice the cost of an entire sellsword army. So, like, imagine buying the Unsullied double that, and that's just to kill, like, some dude who owns a shop. And then he goes on to say, I don't dare think what they might charge for a princess. Now, the faceless men originated in the Valerian slave mines under the... the Volcanoes known as the 14. There are millions of slaves prayed for release from life as they toiled under the Dragon Lord's lash. And one slave, no one knows who he is, his name has been lost to time, heard these cries to a hundred different gods, and the nature of the many faced god was revealed to him. So the first targets of the faceless men then were, um, ironically, the most wretched amongst the slaves because they needed release from life. They needed the gift of death. And gradually that expanded to the slave owners and now in Bravos, they've expanded to basically anyone. Those washcloths aren't, yeah. aren't cheap. No. Aren't cheap. Listen, the rent on the House of Black and White just alone, the property taxes are immense. Those razor blades. Yeah. You need a sharp edge when yeah. you're slicing off Come a on. face. All right, Maester. Hey, guys. Just a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus... You can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. And now, back to binge mode. Jorah might not want to admit that he's Tyrion's travel companion, but <laughs> I am proud, proud to admit that you're mine. So let's head to the Sept and bathe in the light of the Seven by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations yeah. from this episode, lightning round style. You go first. Number one, the agony of the moment when Tyrion lets slip that, uh, hey, I know your dad, and he's dead, he says. Tough. They're talking about dads, trading dad stories, and Tyrion says, as miserable as you are, Mormont, at least your father was a good man. And Jorah's like, well, what do you know about my father? And he's like, I met him. I visited the wall. When I asked him about his men, he knew all their stories, every one of them. He actually cared about the people under his command. How do they put it at the watch? We shall never see his like again. And then Jorah's like, wait, what? Yeah. Huh? Imagine you are Jorah. You brought shame upon your house. Your father, number one, vacated the seat of Bear Island so that you could become Lord of Bear Island. He went to the wall on purpose. 
so you could have the house, the lands, the attendant titles, etc. Jorah, and we'll talk, I'll talk, I'll do one on this, blew all of it basically because he fell in love with a very beautiful and attractive and vivacious woman from the East. Blew it all. Something of a pattern for him? Something of a pattern for Jorah. <laughs> Uh, and that's the reason why he got into selling men into slavery, because he needed cash. He needed quick cash. Brought shame on his house in that manner. And now, in the time since he's been exiled, his father has died at the hands of his own men. And he could not even be there to receive his bones to do anything. Brutal. And he just found out he has grayscale. <laughs> it's it's like a bit of, bit of bad two, two days for Jorah. <laughs> All right, number two. Speaking of speaking to Tyrion and Jorah, there's a great moment when Tyrion, who's frustrated, you know, by, yeah. by Jorah's uh, disposition and his attitude. And Tyrion just wants a chat, just wants some wine. And he says, you're an awful traveling companion. Do you know that? Yeah. Possibly the least charming man I've ever met. And I just have to, I have to take umbrage with this because <laughs> Jorah is a lot of things. But the least charming man is not one of them. He is extremely <laughs> charming. Man. He has... Uh, a great jawline. Sure. Is that is, is that part of charm? Yeah, I think it is. He says <laughs> he says bean instead of bin. He <laughs> he's great. Just any excuse I can find to say he's great. I'm pretty okay. much gonna take. All right. <laughs> Number three. They say that the best lies are close to the truth. Well, are his faceless men's story isn't her actual life, but there are enough kernels of symbolic truth in there to really sell the story, she says to the little girl. I know, don't be afraid. I used to be like you. I was sick. I was dying. But my father never gave up on me. He loved me more than anything in the world, just like your father loves you. So he brought me here. My father prayed to the many-faced God, and I drank the water from his fountain. It healed me. You don't want to hurt anymore. Drink. And Arya. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. beautiful and ruthless at the same time. And it's like also like, yeah, of course, Ned didn't literally take her there. Right. But there are those moments, you know, he loved me more sure. than anything in the world. My father never gave up, gave up on me. I was sick. Right. It's metaphorical, right? This fountain being here now, it's healing her. Right. A lot of truth in there. I love that. Number four, more Tyrion. <laughs> this is a this episode, you know, is light on uh, gems, but there are a couple. And the... Tyrion cock merchant humor is 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 up there. Um, when the slavers capture Tyrion and Jorah and they say, you know, cut his throat and chop off his cock. We'll sell it for a fortune. A dwarf's cock has magic powers. And Tyrion is like, wait, 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 wait. You can't hand a dried cock from the merchant and expect him to pay for it. He's all like, you need to prove it. You right. need to prove it really came from a dwarf. It needs to be attached to me, keep me alive, right. bring me, then chop it off there. That's you know, right. obviously hoping to make an escape between now and then. And the slavers say, it'll be a dwarf-sized cock. And right. there's just this great delivery from Peter <laughs> Dinklage when he says, guess again. Swinging that stick. Tyrion, <laughs> number five. Starts saying Littlefinger. Discussing uh, various things, including how the Boltons have betrayed the Lannisters. And Cersei asks, If war comes to Westeros, will the lords of the Vale fight for their king? Young Lord Robin heeds my advice. I've always come to loyalty to the throne. <laughs> Good. Well, you know what? War came to Westeros, ironically enough, 
And the Lords of the Vale fought for their king because Robin did what Littlefinger wanted. It just happened to be the soon-to-be-anointed King of the North, Jon Snow. I mean, it's one of the things that makes Littlefinger brilliant. Yeah. He can actually say exactly what he means, just not in the way people think he means it. I mean, he stabs about five people in the back in three scenes over two episodes. Poor on Littlefinger short. Yeah. Number Six, one more Littlefinger-centric observation here. A reminder during the course of his discussion with Cersei of what he is actually always chasing. Land. Power. Saying, you know, let status and risk battle at the enemies of the throne slaughter each other. And when they're done, seize Winterfell from whichever thief survives. And then he says, and you know what? I've got uh, an army, actually, in the Vale, very close. Why don't you just let me help you out Why don't you just let me do it? And then, you know what? If you're feeling it, Maybe name me Warden of the North. When have we ever seen someone volunteer to use an army to help solve a problem at Winterfell and then get a Warden of the North ship out of it? Yeah, quite recently, actually, <laughs> we've seen that happen. Number seven, Bronn. As Bronn and Jamie are riding across Dorne on their fine Dornish steeds, dressed wonderfully in silken gowns and turbans, Bronn is singing The Dornishman's Wife with his wonderful singing voice as he was an 80s pop star himself. <laughs> and Jamie is like, yo, can you just shut the fuck up? And Bronn says, you know, the song is really about the ending. What's the ending of The Dornishman's Wife? Well, first of all, The Dornishman's Wife is about the protagonist who has an affair with The Dornishman's Wife and then is killed by The Dornishman. And the last line is, but what does it matter for all men must die and I've tasted The Dornishman's Wife? <laughs> oh, Bronn. Mal? Yeah. Is the girl ready to become no one? Yes. That's not a lie. Each episode, we're going to honor the person who played the game in advance, his or her cause in some tangible way. And this week, the winner of our champion's purse is... Arya Stark. Mm. Finally. Finally seeing what it's all about. Getting down into the Hall of Faces... Taking the next step in yeah. her training. And, you know, that might be a low bar, but not a lot of good, cool things happen in this episode. No, a lot of bad, bad things happen in this episode. And Arya is taking that step that brings her closer to her goal. And she's, when you think about where she's come from, to now be given access to the House of Black and White and the inner sanctum of the faceless men, this is huge. Ready to become someone else, just like Oliver Queen. <laughs> All right, guys. Braun warned us not to do anything stupid, so we're going to wrap there. Thanks for listening today. We hope that you will join us again next time when we will be discussing Season 5, Episode 7, The Gift. Until then, remember, we're all peddling fantasies. Ours just happen to be entertaining. I am Obara Sand. Doctor Rev Overmit Cut. Can you can you just say it like a like less uh with like a person, like less wooden. Okay. I am Obara Sand. Daughter of Oberin Mut No, cut. Just try it one more time. He's your father. You loved him. He's gone now. I am Obara Sand. Daughter of Oberin Martel. I fight for Dorn. Who do you fight for? Cut. Alright, lunch. <laughs> Cut! Lunch! <laughs>